What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain All right, let me tell you a quick story. When I was in Sedona, I was trying to maintain a high level of ketosis because I needed the energy. I had a big mastermind going on and a lot of things going on that required a lot of my time and I didn't have a lot of time to eat, which is the perfect opportunity to get and stay in ketosis. So the question I had for Travis was this. Quick question. Do you think exogenous ketone use during a restricted ketogenic diet slows down endogenous production? I'm trying to get maximum ketone production without strict fasting or keto flu because I have a busy week. I'm at a baseline of three out of eight on the acetone breath meter, probably from the habitual high fat MCT oil use. So I texted that to Travis and here's what he said. Short answer is no. Exogenous ketones should first diminish glucose production and not interfere with endogenous production. I've seen Dom, who is Dominic D'Agostino's, I've seen Dom's glucose meter at 25 when he's full keto with a huge dose of exogenous ketones. Good tool for the keto flu and still hammer a very busy week. We'll probably have a few low moments, however, because it takes months to get fully keto adapted. So that was a question that I had, which was basically, if I'm taking exogenous ketones, like on it has in its total keto daily, am I still going to be producing by myself endogenously that means like myself producing it the adequate amount of ketones or will this prevent my body from producing those and travis's answer was short answer no it's not that it's just going to support my ketone production and that's what i found during the week where i was trying to reach the highest level of ketosis that i've ever reached before and i felt amazing it really felt like my energy was at another level and it was a combination of restricting my calories, having most of my calories come from fat, some of my calories come from protein, and then using scoops of the total keto daily. And I ended up pushing six out of eight on the keto pen after starting at three out of eight. So that's a combination of my diet and a combination of the scoops of the total keto daily. So if you're interested in following that path, which I really highly recommend, like if you haven't felt like what it feels like to be in ketosis, it's awesome. And there's obviously tons of health benefits, but there's also tons of performance benefits. So I really recommend you try it. So go to onnit.com slash Aubrey, check out the Total Keto Daily. There's other good exogenous ketones out there, but I really like ours. The flavor is amazing and we put it with the right ingredients to help support the body in the best way possible. So go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and check out Total Keto Daily. 
I first heard about Travis Christofferson when I read the book, Tripping Over the Truth, The Metabolic Theory of Cancer. Now, I wrote a review for that book at aubreymarcus.com slash cancer because I thought it was such important information. It was talking about how cancer is not just this blight on humanity, this thing that we need to attack and go to war against. It's something that signifies that we have a challenge with our metabolic system. And that way of thinking completely reframes how to treat cancer and what you can do as an adjunct to the current treatments. And Travis is just one of those people that's a dogged researcher. He's going to track down all of the best information and bring it to light. And he's done that in his new book, Curable, where he talks about the entirety of the healthcare system. And we dive straight into it. It's one of my favorite podcasts and genuinely one of the most important podcasts I can recall recording in a long time. So I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Travis Christofferson, you're here Great in the to building. Be here. Thanks, yeah. Man. Great to have you, man. I mean, when I read Tripping Over the Truth, The Metabolic Theory of Cancer, I forget where I first saw it, but I read the book and my jaw was just open for pretty much the whole book. And then I was like, okay, everything's changed. The world's changed. This book exists. Now everybody's going to think about cancer completely differently. And we're on to the new paradigm of treating this disease. And I put it out and I was like, here it goes. Ready? And then it went around a little bit, but like people are stubborn with their thoughts and what should have been a boomerang of an enlightenment and questioning and thoughts and like reevaluating something that's, you know, a major issue in our culture didn't do that in that kind of way that it potentially could. And if you look back through time, of course that makes sense because nothing ever happens that way, but it's just such an important revelation that you put forward both in that book and then all the other subsequent revelations you put forward in Curable. So I'm just really excited to, to talk to you about it and at least maybe give that boomerang a little sputz more, <laughs> yeah. you know, increase the 50-year lag time that we see on medical treatments actually being adopted. Maybe increase that to, I don't know, 49.8 years or so. I don't know, whatever effect we're going to have. But it's just great to have you here, man, and uh, to be able to talk about these issues. Yeah, it's it's... There, there was a book written on the, the nature of scientific revolutions. I can't remember what, it's a very common book, but it, they follow that path. It's, it's this long lag where people debate it. And then, and then, you know, there's kind of a, uh, some anger on both sides. And then there's this sort of a kind of acceptance phase. And, but it's, it's a li almost a lifetime. And that's that Max Planck quote that before, you know, new ideas are introduced, you almost have to wait for the old generation, the old guard to die off first. And I was like you, I was, when I first read Tom Seyfried's book, Cancer is a Metabolic Disease, just shocked by the amount and the quality of data mm -hmm. to support this new theory of cancer. And then this reconfigures, you know, how you treat it and how you approach it. And this whole industry that, that is, in, you know, healthcare is now the number one industry in the world. Um, so it, it, it was shocking to me, yeah, to how does, you know, how do not more people know about this? But then you realize the inertia behind the current system. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the inertia behind the current system because every a lot of people listening to this are probably like, well, duh, it's the number one industry in the world. Of course, there's going to be resistance because it's all about the money. Well, but then you look at something like how when they figured out the cure for scurvy in the British Royal Navy, it took 50 years for them to get fucking lemons on their boat. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, people just dying and just getting thrown overboard as shark food, you know, from fucking scurvy. And then they're like, well, 
okay, 50 years, I guess we'll follow yeah. this cure that has been already shown, right? And then in every different case, even when there's not money involved, when it's actually costing people money, it takes time. And I think that's what you do such a good job in Curable with is it's not just about the money because there is a lot about the money. And we'll talk about that in some of the ways that the financial structure of the healthcare system is disadvantageous from the funding of the studies to the fee for service that the doctors get there's a lot of issues that do involve money so it's not Mm -hmm. about not about the money Mm -hmm. but it's also about the way that the mind thinks like we are stubborn motherfuckers and we do not like new ideas coming to dethrone the existing ideas yeah we get stuck in those mental paradigms um yeah scurvy was a weird case they they this guy james lynn proved it unequivocally on, on an you know back when the royal navy was out for months at a time and literally hundreds of thousands of people were dying from scurvy. And that's a lack of vitamin C for anybody who doesn't just, know what scurvy yeah, take is. Yeah, take a lemon. They've just watched pirate movies and said, you fucking scurvy. <laughs> <You're right>. Yeah, <laughs> it, was it was a real scurvy. thing. Yeah, it was a real thing. <laughs> it was like an actual disease. People died. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, he published this. It was lemon juice. It cured these guys. And God, Mike, you're talking about a horrible disease. So you, you run out of vitamin C. You can't make collagen. And they described it as like lassitude of the knees and a putrefaction of the gums. So you're just basically your your connective tissues melting away. And and then so he gave them all these. You know, some people thought it was the salt water. They thought malt was a cure. And he gave them lemons. And these two guys that were in this throes of scurvy got up and started helping everybody else. He published it, and then there was a huge lag before they implemented it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we were talking about, too, it, 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 the fecal transplant was the same process. They knew about this for C. diff in 1958. This guy published unequivocal data in four people that it was a, a, basically a cure. And again, we had this lag until about 2015. So in, in the C. diff, the C. diff thing is crazy because like the cure rate for, and I have it somewhere here in my notes, but I can't exactly find it at the moment. But cure rate, if I recall, is something like 96% with a yeah. fecal transplant which is actually taking somebody else's gut microbiome through their feces they have ways to actually filter out the shit part now and just keep the yeah keep the bio- probiotics but you transplant that directly into somebody else's colon and the colon is where you know all like c diff infections take hold which is a particularly pathogenic and aggressive bacteria that antibiotics only work what like sub 40 percent of the time or like 30 yeah. percent of the time it's, i think it's 75 but then it drops down to 40 and then to 20 so you know once you get caught in that cycle you're you're pretty much fucked yeah. i mean meanwhile if you can go and go butt to butt with the hose i mean it's not that easy you need a blender or, or <laughs> you need a easy? doctor yeah. you know but basically you get a healthy you get some healthy poop in your colon game over yeah. you're done you don't have to deplete your entire body's microbiome you don't have to go do all this stuff you just need to have someone shit in your butt <laughs> that's it and you're it was, cured it was such a you know that story as i dug into it incurable was so remarkable because it goes back to the 1940s and world war ii and the the nazis had just won a campaign in northern africa against the british and all of a sudden they had this horrible outbreak of dysentery and so the nazis flew in their, their chemists their doctors everybody and what they noticed was the local arabs were were fine they were they were just somehow weren't affected by this and so they tracked them and they found out they were getting sick but they'd they'd walk behind a camel and when it defecated they'd scoop it up and eat it 
And so the idea was somehow there's some bacteria in this camel dung that's out competing this dysentery. But did they have that idea or did they just think that like eating poo was the magical cure? No, they, they, they Louis they Pasteur, yeah, he had established, um, you know, germ theory at that point okay. and they knew that was it. So they isolated it and they gave it to, to the, you know, to the soldiers and it, it worked and it was some, I can't remember, subless back, uh, bacteria subless or something. Bacillus subtilis. I that's think? it. That's yep. it. And that was one of the, you know, that was the kind of the main line for dysentery at the time. And then it was about two years later, the penicillin came out. So it, it was really interesting at that moment when you think about if we would have taken a different path instead of the antibiotic path. I mean, they were lifesavers, no doubt about it. But if we could have appreciated what that bacteria was doing versus just wiping it out with antibiotics, mm. medicine would have taken a different course, but it didn't. And so we used antibiotics, you know, everybody knows the story you get pathogenic um, resistance and so forth. And so this has always been a problem. And in the fifties, people would get, they give antibiotics perioperatively right before surgery to prevent infection. And a lot of these people would develop C. diff at, in the aftermath. And so this doctor- Because, okay, because the antibiotics are wiping out right, right. all of your friendly probiotic bacteria. Like right. what people may not understand is Bacteria are perpetually in competition yeah. with the fungus, with everything in your gut, right? So an antibiotic is like a nuclear bomb. It's like Agent Orange. It's coming through to the whole forest, not discriminating which plants it's killing, killing the good ones, killing the bad ones, wiping everything out. And then that gives ground for whatever is still hanging on, whatever's alive and whatever wants to be the most aggressive at that point in time right. to just flourish right. and sometimes that's c diff right sometimes it's not sometimes mm -hmm. it's actually yeast that takes the place of all of these that's why there's so many yeast infections that come after an antibiotic course you know it's yeah. like whatever is there it's just kind of like oh wow you know new free ground like nothing right. to compete with me i'm just gonna rush right through right yeah and so blank canvas blank canvas and that's what's happening and that's what's creating the the fertile ground for c diff to take hold that's what was happening when the bacillus subtilis was actually competing against the pathogenic bacteria that was causing the dysentery, right? Mm -hmm. It's just introducing that natural level of competition and having something that outcompetes the existing, you know, pathogenic bacteria. Right, right, right. And so this doctor in, in 1958 in Denver um, had that same epiphany. And back, you know, think of the 58s, all fe feces was just thought of as a disease vector. Right. And this guy had this subtle, you know, epiphany this moment of intuition that perhaps fecal matter was this ecosystem like you like you describe it this whole ecosystem and he called it reestablishing the balance of nature so he took some feces from a maternity ward nearby and and these patients had had c diff and and just you know put an enema in and, and that was it. it it was a cure for four patients and th so this was published in the journal of surgery in 1958 um, and you know, it just never caught on. And for obvious reasons, I think that it's just, it's much easier to give a pill than fecal transplant. Well, it's the same reason that probably even in the, even in the military, even in the German, with the German soldiers, they moved to penicillin when penicillin was mm -hmm. invented. And they're like, well, we could have, we could drink camel shit or, and it would actually work, but we can take this pill and it'll mostly right. work. Yeah. But the problem is it only temporarily works. It's just wiping everything out one time. It's not establishing any kind of bacterial you know, colonies that can actually prevent this from happening in the future. It's actually making you more vulnerable, but yeah. they're not thinking long-term that, well, I get it again. And I just take more pills and I get it again and I just take more pills. And then the long-term cascading effects of using that as the emergency stopgap becomes a problem. Yeah. 
yeah, it's a short-term, short-sighted thinking. That's why I think that, you know, fecal transplants are getting more established now. They're still slow. Well, it was 2012, you said, somewhere around there, that they actually got approved for for C. diff infections. Right, not even approved, just enforcement discretion. So it's not a formal approval. It's still under this kind of veil of uncertainty. So it's still, you know, very underrepresented. It's still hard to get. And that's why... In the early 2000s, it was, kind of, it was interesting how the path it followed. In the early 2000s, people just found it on the internet. It was like a DIY, do-it-yourself fecal transplant. And there was tens of thousands of people doing this every year for C. diff, for, for you know, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, and so forth. And there was only a handful of doctors doing it. And it was a cure. It was like 94% cure. And then the 6%, you just did it again. And it was a cure. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the FDA uh, wrestled with this. You know, they were going to... Required to have an investigational new drug paperwork, which is, if anyone knows, it's just like it's off the table. It's so much bureaucracy. And um, how are you even going to do that? Because it's poop. It's, it's poop. Like it's not going to be standardized. And they were focused on these long-term risks. Well, what if you know the patient gains weight down to? Well, these people are dying. You yeah. know, they, you just they lose this this sort of um, the recognition of the risk reward in that moment. Yeah, all right, you're going to gain about a pound when that shit gets enemaed <laughs> into your ass and then you poop and then you're going to lose it again. Right. You know, but I mean, I do understand what they're saying. They had that study on mice where like obese mice were given the gut biomes of like active athletic mice and they were switched and then yeah. they then the obese mice became athletic, the athletic mice became obese. So there's probably way more effects, which actually when you look at it make it more interesting so it's kind of like when you're looking for a sperm donor right and you're looking for the dad that you want like all right there's lots of them that can get you pregnant there's lots of fecal transplants that can cure some of these bacterial imbalances but you might want to get it from someone who has a lot of other cool attributes too it's like <laughs> genuine generally happy you right. know like works out a lot you know the maybe a good profile. love maker you know you want like a survey and be the like no. super poop the super poop super <laughs> poop donors right. would be rich as fuck they're right. just balling on their shit there are now there's there's donors super donors that have the perfect feces <laughs> and there's feces banks so it's it's come a long way but you know if we we could have if that research wasn't delayed so long, now we know you can transfer anxious behavior through fecal transplants. <clears throat> so much of th- these bacteria, you know, have evolved with us for billions of years, and they are producing neurotransmitters. They're di- almost guiding our behavior. Sure. So, you know, now I think there was a study that came out about a month ago on pancreatic cancer. They found a bacterial signature on the tumor. And so they, tr- they, no- they just took long-term pancreatic cancer survivors versus people that didn't do well, and they did the fecal transplant into the mice, and they were able to confer that, that ability to respond to the treatment, so can, you know, to transplant the ability to live longer with pancreatic cancer. So wow. almost every disease state we're, we're finding is, is you know, somehow influenced by the gut biome. Ketogenic diet, which was used for um, epilepsy, when you give a mouse, raise it in a germ-free environment so it's got no microbiome or give it antibiotics, a, a mouse that's got epilepsy, put it on a ketogenic diet, it doesn't work. And so we always thought it was, well, it's beta-hydroxybutyrate or some of these you know, shifting in neurotransmitters, but it's something more even complex than that. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, and the ketogenic diet is something you talk a lot about in the Tripping Over the Truth, and I want to get to that. But just one example, just to go, and we'll talk more about cognitive biases but just for people to understand how these things 
are people are so resistant because i think a lot of people might think like well if this worked it would be out there yeah not fucking true no not fucking true like mm-hmm. the guy who and you tell the story in tripping over the truth the guy who discovered that h pylori caused ulcers in the stomach mm-hmm. everybody's like fuck off you quack like you don't know anything and he's like yeah i do it's really this is what causes it and they're like no no it's not wrong you know yeah. they had their own prevailing theory and then he was like all right well i'm gonna drink h pylori and you're gonna watch what happens to my stomach yeah. like that's what it took <laughs> and then they were like oh yeah he was right he was right <laughs> give me, him the nobel prize yeah exactly and did he actually get the yeah. nobel prize for yeah, that i think so yeah well, it was a noble effort that he fucking made. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really the right. I mean, but what lengths do you have to go to to show this to like to to get overcome the prevailing attitudes? And again, like one of the heartbreaking stories is the is that of the radical mastectomy. But I'm sure, well, you know, I want to get to that as well. But it's just the prevailing the prevailing way takes a lot of time and research and energy to overturn. It's the same with the psychedelic medicine revolution. Like mm-hmm. we were on to this a long time ago through the 60s and the initial studies that we were doing and now again 50 years later long enough for the people who are academically in power at that time to pass on and to retire or die or move on then all of a sudden wow we're back and there's a new paradigm that's actually coming hopefully you know we get a little bit more cognitively flexible and can speed that process up because if we had to take 50 years you know we may not have 50 years anymore yeah. You know, we might not have 50 years to solve this healthcare, these healthcare issues, because there's the problems are pressing on us hard. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. I don't know how you solve that, <clears throat> you know, other than the take home message is keep an open mind. Yeah. It, it's a lot of it is just institutional. When you look at oncologists day to day job, it's it's tough. I mean, they're churning through patients. They only have so much time. Patient comes in and. What about this? What about curcumin? What about ketogenic diet? And they don't have time to answer all those. Number one, and they and then they they a lot of them will like to have this modicum of control over the patient because there's only so many tools in their toolbox, and so they 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 fall back in that line. There's not enough data, and when you look at the ketogenic diet again, like fecal transplant, you just you weigh the risk reward. Okay, there there is there's not an FDA approved trial, but there's a hell of a lot of data suggests it could work. And what do I have to lose? You know, you might have a terminal illness and it's a diet. So there's a disconnect between say that, that sort of position of that, well, there's not enough data to, you know, the, the risk reward that the patients are dealing with. And maybe there isn't enough data, or maybe there is actually adequate data, but like one of the cognitive bias you you mentioned is the availability heuristic, which Mm -hmm. I think applies here. Like you just move based upon the information that you have available right yeah. like what do i know well i know this i know chemo i know uh, radiology i know you know these things so let's go that way that's exactly right you know that, and it's just the way that the brain works yeah and it's it's medicine i tried to make that point in the book medicine it used to be practicable by a doc he'd come with his little case there was you know a handful of drugs it worked and and he could practice medicine he knew what he could do and what he couldn't do now there's 6,000 drugs, there's 4,000 um, medical devices and procedures. It is just, it's nothing that, you know, these original docs that established this sort of ethos of the doctor of the sovereign of intellectual autonomy. It doesn't look like that anymore. They cannot know it all. They can't know all this data. So this is this transformation that we need to, you know, we need to have a system that, that helps these doctors, that shows them this non-RCT randomized control trial data 
when they can apply it. But that, you know, that's where we're at. And that's what's, there's pockets of this where you can see it being done. Um, but that's where the whole system needs to go. To do a ketogenic diet effectively, you need high quality protein sources as well as high quality fat sources. And one of the easiest and best ways to get this is through ButcherBox. ButcherBox is going to send you a box of high quality, sustainably sourced meats that are just going to arrive at your door frozen every month that you can cook into any recipe you like. And it makes it so convenient to know that you got grass-fed, grass-finished, high-quality meat delivered to you that's going to support your metabolic system in the most optimal ways. It's going to provide the micronutrients that come from these animals eating all of the right things. Because as I say in my book, you aren't only what you eat, you are what you eat ate. And that's why if you go to butcherbox.com slash Aubrey, you're going to get two pounds of 100% grass-fed beef in every box for the life of your subscription, as well as $20 off your first box. So again, ButcherBox is one of those things that I love having it arrive at my door. I'm able to stock my freezer and make sure that no matter what, even if I didn't have time going to the store, I know that I got my bone broth in my cabinet and I know that I have my ButcherBox in my freezer and I'm good. I'm good. I mean, I like going to the grocery store. It's fun. But if I don't want to, I got everything I need to help my diet stay at an optimal level. So once again, go to butcherbox.com slash Aubrey, save $20 off your first box and get that two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished beef in every box for the life of your subscription. All right, let's go back. Let's go back to this tripping over the truth and let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for one, you know, chemotherapy is now the established, the established treatment method for all cancer. And I thought there was a really wild story about how chemotherapy was actually discovered and developed so i was hoping you could share that and then we'll dive into the rest of things yeah so back it was again during world war ii and and, you know what was known of cancer at that time was it was just pathological cell division so that the problem was these cells and their breaks had been shut off and they just were dividing so how do you kill fast dividing cells and it came sort of by accident they they had there was a war gas called nitrogen mustard in, during World War II in the mustard Allies. Mustard gas. Mustard gas, right. And they'd signed this, the Allies and the Axis had signed this agreement to not use it, but both sides were stockpiling it, thinking the other side was. And so the Bari Harbor in Italy, the Allies were there. They thought the German Air Force was stretched too thin to bomb them. They kind of were, you know, coagulated in there, <clears throat> thinking the Luftwaffe wouldn't come near. They knew they were there and they bombed them and they bombed the USS Harvey, which was stockpiled all this nitrogen mustard gas. It released it all and, and the soldiers got soaked in it and it went over the town and killed some of the, some of the civilians. So that they flew the doctors over, they took back samples from these soldiers that had died. And what they noticed is their lymph cells, their white blood cells were depleted. So they had this sudden idea, well, here's an agent that could possibly treat leukemias because there's no way to cut leukemias out. You know, there's no, no treatment whatsoever for leukemias. <clears throat> so they started a clinical trial and they just injected war gas into the veins. And you can imagine what that does, you know, to somebody. And those are the, the same sort of side effects we're associated with chemo today. It's gotten much better, but that was the treatment paradigm. We just try to find this knife's edge of toxicity where the patient doesn't quite die 
but you might kill off the majority or some of these cancer cells. And I think one of the interesting points you make is like this paradigm of the treatment being actually coming from a war gas and being like you're you like you're going into war against your body created this whole idea in the zeitgeist of the war on cancer right because why else would you bear such a cost unless it was a war yeah like it's the only way we're storytelling animals right like the only way you can make sense that you're curing yourself is if you're going into war yeah with uh with an agent that you need to kill at all costs and then then you're willing to take the mustard gas and whatever chemotherapy agent equivalent we have you're like well this is war and that the vernacular, I think, you know, he put up a good fight. Yeah. I was with him in the battle, you know. And and that's what's so interesting when you frame cancer differently, as if you look at it as a metabolic disease and you reconfigure this idea of how you treat it. It now it's not a battle, it's about changing sort of the environment. Like and Tom Safrids always says you should come out on the other side healthier than when you came in. So, you know, hopefully we can get to that point. And that was something that you know Otto Warburg was onto early like that idea of what was the fertile ground that allowed this cancer flower to blossom right like what was what were the conditions that caused it like he and he's when was his heyday it was like early 20th century right yeah 1924 he made this discovery that cancer cell was just had this metabolic dysregulation so it just was had this voracious appetite for sugar and and would not take sugar and then burn it oxidatively in the mitochondria with oxygen. It would just kick out lactic acid. And there's no reason the cancer cell should be doing this. This is something normal cells don't do. So why is a cancer cell doing this? And he he died in 1970. He was never really able to answer that question. And that's where, you know, this this his original theory was brought back to life by Tom Seyfried, who shows there, there, and this is a center of debate. He claims that ca- the mitochondria are extraordinarily damaged and they just don't work. And that's what Otto Warburg always said. But the crux of it is, is that even if that's a trigger, the, the, the damage to the mitochondria, but you see this, this consistent shift in the cancer cell towards this metabolic phenotype. And everyone describes cancer as this disease of chaos, but it's doing all these systematic things, right? So when you, cancer is such a, most diseases you can describe by one thing, C. diff, it's an infection. Sure. But cancer is just, it's a narrative. And so I think in my, you know, in my opinion, when you look at everything and tally it up, the the reason we haven't made progress is we still describe it as an exclusively genetic disease when it's better described as a metabolic or epigenetic disease. And there's crossover. Nobody argues that, you know, these mutations aren't important. It's just that they cannot be a comprehensive explanation for the whole disease. So in this metabolic theory, basically, the if let's suppose that the mitochondria aren't able to utilize oxygen mm-hmm. to produce energy, because the mitochondria's responsibility is to produce the energy for the body to survive. Yeah. If the mitochondria aren't able to do that through, through weakening, through damage, or aren't able to do that at the proper rate, mm-hmm. then <clears throat> they revert to an alternate method. Like this is like the backup generator battery. Well, what's the backup generator? Well, we can ferment glucose. But the moment they switch to the backup generator, they lose communication with the rest of the body. Yeah. Right. And they just go rampantly like we got to survive. We got to ferment glucose. That's the way that our cells are going to operate, losing coherence with the organism. And which was really made a lot of sense. Like, well, all right. So then instead of the 
instead of the war on these on this thing what if you assume that okay the cells are smart they know that they can't get an adequate amount of energy produced through their mitochondria so they're doing the next intelligent thing as individual organisms mm-hmm. whose prerogative it is to survive yeah you know they're doing the thing they need to do to survive but they're not aware that they're not in communication with the rest of the organism so they're actually going to cause their own demise yeah. but they're just thinking about the life of their own cell yeah and they're fermenting glucose and going and reproducing out of control at this point right but it's like at that point you're like oh i hear you cancer like i've got some problems with my mitochondria like i see what you're doing like you don't need to do that let me fix my mitochondria and you're good yeah you know and it's like instead of like having this antagonistic approach be like okay cancer like i hear you you know like you're putting up the flag got it now let's see what we can do to help solve the condition and it seemed like there was pretty compelling evidence from the strategies that you were discussing in there that doing some things that rehabilitate the mitochondria to a certain degree and improve their health were pretty fucking effective. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're learning more and more of that. You, you described that really beautifully, by the way. That, and that goes back when you, we look at life on the, you know, the Earth form 4.6 billion years ago. Life started about 4 billion and was single-celled organisms for most of the tenure on the planet. Then the one event that allowed us complex organisms to evolve was the mitochondria, a symbiotic relationship where one bacteria ate another and one became the mitochondria. And so that linkage is what signed the contract for cells to operate in the collective. And the way you described it was reverting back to that original prerogative, which is just replicative immortality, divide, divide. They just tear up the contract to live within the collective. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a great n- narrative description of what the, you know, s- the prime sort of mechanism behind cancer. And, and so, yeah, the way you treat it, restoring mitochondria, restoring that oxidative metabolism that then communicates to come back to the collective. You know, you, when you fast before chemo, we're now learning Walter Longo at um, Walter Longo at UCLA. You set up this beautiful differentiate. You get into ketosis quickly, a 72-hour fast. Your healthy cells are made more robust. Your cancer cells are weakened because you drop blood sugar and they're having to shift metabolism. And then you give you can give lower doses of chemo and, and they're just sensitized. The cancer cells are sensitized to die. And then you can measure the side effects from the chemo and the healthy cells and every one of them is diminished. And the objective ones that you can count. So the number of times a patient throws up goes from like 10 a day to zero. So it works, you know, just a fast. Who knew? It's well, free. Well, of course, it makes such fucking perfect sense, right? All right, these cells are fermenting glucose to survive. Yeah. All right, so the press strategy, because you talk about the press impulse, the press strategy is to put pressure on them. Hey, no glucose anymore, buds. You know, sorry about that. And then you come in with an agent that kills off the weakest. Well, the ones that are the weakest are going to be the ones that are dependent on the thing that you're no longer providing, mm-hmm. which is glucose. Mm-hmm. And so those ones die faster and the patient yeah. recovers like quickly because the other healthy cells are still uting, utilizing mitochondria for energy. They can still use oxygen. Right. And we're not starving the body of oxygen at all. In fact, then the next part of the strategy comes in, okay, instead of starving the body of oxygen, if that's what's actually supporting healthy mitochondria, let's compound the oxygen yeah. through hyperbaric treatments. Yeah, and it, it makes me wonder, like, 
so the you know this collective the cancer cells are living in and the healthy cells you're all competing for blood glucose and 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 i always think of lance armstrong you found out that he he was actually riding his bike his trainer while he was taking chemo you know so he was creating this environment that these healthy cells are just they're out competing the cancer cells for every nutrient scrap so i, I wonder too how much we could you know We've always told patients to just lay down, don't don't be stressed. You know, you'd want to, but I wonder if you created that more of a competition between the healthy cells and the cancer cells, that you'd even get more of a bang for your buck. Well, it could be just that the that you're absorbing more glucose too. You mm-hmm, could just sure. be closer to a, a lower blood sugar state because you go for a walk mm-hmm. after your after a heavy dinner, your blood sugar is going to drop. Yeah, you know, even a walk, right? Right, like just like simple. These are these are fat. All of this is like research facts. So mm-hmm. that could be it. It's out competing for nutrients, of course, but it also could be just the effects, the metabolic effects of starving these cancer cells yeah. of their primary source of fuel, yeah, which is sugar. Simple, simple, too simple, <laughs> yeah. too simple for a trillion dollar industry, right? Yeah. And that's the problem. It's most of these therapies are free. You can't patent them. Right. So how, you know, an oncologist is already too busy. It's actually literally free of fast. Right. <laughs> it's like it's the freest thing. It's the for the freest thing you can possibly do. A healthy diet, at least you got to pay for food. Right. You, you can yeah. fast. You're good. That's it. Yeah. Literally, you drink you, you got to drink water and breathe air. That's Ready, it. go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, does insurance cover that? I don't know. It costs nothing. <laughs> you don't need to file a claim. Like yeah, you're right. good. But and but then the and the research has panned out, and that's the uh, the other thing too is like for people who are you know because the doctors there's so much fear and, and there's so much fear and so much hope and the stakes are so high it's going to be tough to change even the patient's mind about what to do. But something like when you show the research of okay, you can still have your chemotherapy, but just if you fast beforehand, look at how much better it works. Yeah, you know that's something that I think like everybody can get on board with. Yeah, you know, all right, fasting is a little bit annoying, but guess what? So cancer's way worse. So yeah. if this shows that it's going to work, and all you got to do is fast for three days before this, and it's going to show these dramatic improvements, like it should be the absolute standard of care. But how many oncology places are actually recommending this? Oh, I bet low per single digits, if any. You know, some are, but it's it's you know nowhere near the majority right yeah and that's and that's sad Mm -hmm. and then you have to look at why is it the stubbornness of the mind is it or is it you know something where the actual monetary value of these cancer treatments being prolonged like and you talk about all of the unnecessary chemotherapy that's given at the end of life which i think uh was it munger who just talked about it was like almost nothing short of evil because it had no benefit and it just completely deteriorated the quality of life in people who had no chance of survival rung up the tab but at the cost of someone's life and their family and their ability to like peacefully live out their last days yeah and and then compared to people who got palliative care Mm -hmm. which is just a support group you know helping you deal with the fact you you know you could die and just coming to terms with what's happening people who got palliative, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, who got palliative care, most of them forwent the end of life, like Hail Mary chemo, that most people, the other people take, and um, lived longer, on average two months longer. So they had a better ending. It didn't bankrupt the system. And, and that's, you know, that's another thing. 
that I tried to show in Curable, this human side of medicine that goes to our core DNA, we know now, is one of the, is another just low hanging fruit that we've really, you know, it's it's a complex how to address it, but it's it's there. Yeah. And, and the other thing is is that you mentioned, um, we're really good at screening now. So ultrasounds for prostate cancer, mammograms. Um, so we, we, we've gotten really good at detecting early stage cancer. And so what the hell do you do then though? Okay, you, your prostate looks, you know, your PSA is high. You could have cancer, he says the word, or she. Then the, the patient panics and wants treatment. What's the treatment look like? Well, it's surgery or chemo, it's caustic. This is another, this is a great spot where these metabolic therapies would be perfect, right? Mm. The response is proportional to this vague idea you could have cancer. And most of these tumors are benign and won't do anything because we're really good at detecting early, but the, the death rates have not budged. Yeah. So that's another, another good spot for these or these, you know, worrisome pre- pre-cancers that they don't have any good answer on how to treat. Well, you, you said that in 2008, 70,000 women were overdiagnosed with breast cancer. Yeah. That was a study done. 70,000 yeah. women were overdiagnosed. 70,000. So what does that mean? That means what? Mastectomies. That means chemotherapy. That means all kinds all, of things. Yeah. And, and PSA, if the, the people that are men that get diagnosed with prostate cancer from PSA levels are 47 times more likely to get treatment. So radiation, surgery, or chemo than they are to have their life extended. It's hard Whoa. to get your head around that, but yeah. So the P- that's why Munger said, you know, he crosses out the PSA every yeah. time his doctor doctor puts it on the list. Yeah, because he doesn't want him to do anything silly, stupid. he said. Yeah, I don't want you to do anything stupid. Say that fact again. So if you get diagnosed with prostate cancer from a PSA, you're 47 times more likely to get treatment surgery, radiation, or chemo, then you are to have your life extended. Whoa. It's kind of, it's a weird fact. So the treatment doesn't actually extend the life. Right. And, 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 you're, you're, treating, more, and you're more likely to do it even though it doesn't extend your life. And, right. So you, the, the take home is you're treating cancers that are probably not going to have any, any, any threat to you. They're benign tumors. It could make sense because prostates are involved in boners and men would rather do anything <laughs> than lose the chance of having a boner. Which the surgery can make you lose the chance of having oh, a boner. Oh, <laughs> man. Well, we really got it wrong then. I mean, come on, people. Get it together. Save your boners. Shit. That's uh, the new prostate campaign. <laughs> that's wild. All right. So you see, you see all this stuff. Uh, briefly, though. So there was the obviously the ketogenic diet. There's the hyperbaric oxygen, increasing the oxygen availability in the, in the blood cells that's that's the core of the press pulse theory yeah. for metabolically treating cancer you also mentioned some drugs that were interesting investigational drugs like 3bp mm-hmm. and um there's another one that i forgot towards the end of the book that actually might have even been better um what are your thoughts on those now i know some time has passed since the book are you still bullish on these kind of metabolic uh, yeah, drug oh, treatments yeah. yeah 3bp um the patent holder young co from johns hopkins She's finally got a, uh, looks like a deal with a um, pharmaceutical company to go through trials and they're going to set up, I think, three or four different trials. So that's in the works finally. Um, There's all kinds of different repurposed drugs that show this kind of metabolic activity, like metformin is one. Um, Statins, which, you know, have an indication for cardiac disease. You look at the data and they're they're probably... I would never, most people- They're terrible for cardiac disease. Most people wouldn't recommend it for cardiac, but they, for cancer, they're 
extraordinary in the right circumstances. Well, talk about metformin first, because that's operating a different mechanism. Both metformin and the statins are tackling yeah. this from two different issues. Right. So you want, right. So then that's the goal of any type of the therapy is to hit this, hit it at every angle you can. So metformin is a weird drug. It lowers blood glucose, but it's doing more than that to the cancer cells. It's, it's, we don't even know all the mechanisms, but it's somehow whatever oxidative phosphorylation they have left, it targets that. Um, and statins, they, they, they're, you know, what they call pleiotrophic molecules. So they hit all different kinds of pathways. They're very anti-inflammatory. Cancer cells really rely on cholesterol synthesis for their membranes. They use it as signaling. So when you cut down that internal manufacturer of cholesterol, you, you're targeting the cancer right. cell. And when you put these in combination, that's when the data is really interesting. When you look at people that are on statin metformin together, prescribed for other reasons, their, their hazard ratios, so their, their rates of developing cancer drop dramatically, like over 50% in a lot of cases. It's really, yeah, it's really interesting because statins were developed because people thought that cholesterol caused heart disease. And then they're like, whoops. Yeah, that's not Cholesterol right. doesn't cause heart disease. Yeah. It's only certain types of cholesterol cause heart disease. And really that cholesterol is formed from actually having too much sugar. Yeah. <laughs> so like that whole, all of that research came out. So then statins are like, you know, that's kind of like a bad word. When I was reading that, I was like, oh, well, but cancer uses cholesterol in a specifically different way. Right. So that's why it's an effective off-label treatment yeah. for that and then the metformin made sense from the just general metabolic theory i mean they may have other mechanisms of action too yeah but like the general metabolic theory of lowering blood glucose right exactly like, yeah. so both of those are kind of operating in this way and, and that's one of the other things you were talking about in curable is all right so you have these drugs that you know are around and available but what's the incentive to do new trials on these new drugs for new things when the patent has already expired yeah right because there's nobody who actually benefits from the generics you know the generic the generic drug actually who owns the generic drug oh i think there's various yeah so all kinds of entities yeah. but there's not enough of a focused interest like when you have a patented drug you got 20 years there's a focused interest on expanding the market as much as possible so they'll do the research if they still got the patent yeah. But something like metformin that's been out, nobody owns the patent. So it'd be like basically like all the milk, which is kind of cool when like milk does an advertisement, you know, like <laughs> like brought to you by milk. And you're like, <laughs> who's milk? That's cool. Like all the milk people got together, like brought to you by beef. And you're like, Grout's incredible cooperation, you know, like I really appreciate that cooperation, you know. And I guess that would be the way that it would have to be unless the government was willing to sponsor it or charitable enterprises were willing to sponsor it. You know, it would have to be the met, generic metformin collective yeah. that put together the study to expand the off-label use of metformin, knowing that it's going to get spread around to all of the people providing the generics. Yeah, yeah, and that could be that could be the way. But one way or another, we got to find the avenues, whether it's through charitable enterprise or whether it's through government intervention or whether it's through you know like all the cattle farmers getting together and putting a beef commercial on the fucking super bowl like whatever yeah. whatever the, whatever works we got to find a way to like start expanding the research here yeah and there's no good answer to that you're right it's it's they call financial orphans they're off patent no one's got an incentive to do that to do the big trial to get fda approval there's just no incentive so it'd have to be a, that's where you think government would step in and sponsor that those kind of trials because who benefits from that we do the people do it's yeah. like building the interstate highway system. You know, it's a one-time layout, and then it's a five-cent pill that could affect outcomes for everybody. 
you know, but, but these, you know, the government is, is really entrenched again, back to these cognitive biases entrenched in this gene theory. And there's a kind of a pro-innovation bias. And what's next in the pharmaceutical world? You know, targeted therapies. Now there's CAR-T, which is half a million dollars. They take out your blood cells and re-engineer them and inject them back in. So it's always going towards more expensive, more complex treatments when we have these wonderful treatments that are dirt cheap that just kind of sit there and languish. Yep. And, you know, all of the all of the different biases that exist in even government spending, right? Like, yeah. we're... we're like, hey, like U.S. government, like we're not going to get in a land war again. You know, like we can like shift our spending on some of these fucking bombs and stuff. Like we're good. You yeah. know, a couple nuclear submarines and no one's going to fucking land on Canada and come this way. You know what I mean? Like we're we're good. We're good. You know, it's but still like the spending is and I'm not saying like cut all military spending. I understand that there's a purpose for the military and it's important to have it. But like the excess that we're spending on some stuff like that is just like, well, how about we study the things that are that could cure Americans, which are then costing all of this money that we're wasting. I mean, it's like, as you said, it's like one of the biggest expenditures in the whole nation in, in far as you know, output, like, let's spend a little money doing this. And then let's take that money that we save from spending a little money doing this. And then we can maybe spend that on education or I don't know, something cool like that. Like, there's so much opportunity if people could just start to switch their mind a little bit. You know, the amount of wealth in this country, I mean, we spend more what than the next 10 countries combined military spending. It's insane. There's a there's an art museum in, in Baltimore had a spiral staircase that showed and it showed like the spending on the, on the railing as you went up. And it was like education's a little, like two steps and, you know, agriculture. And then you, you just go wind and wind up the military. And healthcare now is, I think, over $3 trillion in churn in the American economy. So it's about, get, you know, nearing 20%. And it's estimated that 50% of that is waste. So over-treatment, fraud, all in that bucket of waste. If you could chip away at that, say 40%, mm. you know, that's trillion and a half dollars that you could spend on schools or just making the citizenry more happy, yeah, enriching our lives. And you show examples of this, like in McAllen, yeah. Texas, mm-hmm. you know, th- there was this kind of culture of money that developed where everybody was like, ah, send them for an extra CAT scan. Ah, you know, let's, you know, let's cut in here and see what's going on and let's run these expensive tests and everybody was just running up this huge tab and it was actually far higher than the nation's average and when investigative journalists came in there yeah they had this huge expose people went to jail people figured it out and mccallan actually dropped down and is now one of the more efficient yeah you know cities around there but the same thing can happen from both greed which is the mccallan story and then in the reading story it was all about fear right it was like the fear of heart disease yeah everybody getting these preventative stints in their heart yeah it's crazy. We the way we incentivize doctors the fee for service, so they get paid for every treatment and, and procedure they do. So the, the obvious incentive is to overtreat, you know, and it just creeps in that direction over time. And you can show this very easily. You know, you put more back surgeons in a county, the number of back surgeries go up, and and the you know the, the outputs don't go up. So it just you do the math. It just means a lot of people are getting unnecessary surgeries. Yeah. So. Self-insured companies are kind of figuring this out. Walmart's one that 
if a if an employee has back pain, um, they won't they'll fly them to the Mayo Clinic because the docs there on salary. So they have you know incentive. If this patient doesn't need a back surgery, they won't do it. And that's and that's actually the rev, one of the revolutions in healthcare that actually people have took, you know, took into their own hands. Like, you know, the the Berkshire Hathaway founders who probably control one of the biggest conglomerates, including Walmart and every and all of these other enterprises. They decided they're like, all right, you know, yeah. this is broken. We're gonna go and fix it. Yeah, and that's something that's it's so what what's the process of development of that and that is doctors who are on salary so there's no fee for service so yeah. they're just there to treat and it's implementing a lot of these like checklists and best practices yeah. that can make like really dramatic improvement there was some study that there was like a 45 percent chance of uh of 47 percent reduction in death rate yeah. Yeah. just by adding a surgical checklist that two, takes two minutes? Two minutes, yeah, two-minute checklist. And 47% less people die if you fill out this checklist? Like, we don't we don't get, like, that this is just a job, that you know, it's an important job, but, like, it's our life, but the doctors may just forget something. They may be thinking about their date later. Like, they're human beings, yeah. and they do this every day, so the tolerance to this thing is... This is their everyday thing. So having something like a checklist, so we don't, we can't put them up on this pedestal of like, they're going to be solely focused and and maniacally, you know, like maybe they need a checklist, like everybody would, you know, like we have a checklist for when we release content. It's not, yeah. you know, like everybody has a checklist for when they do. The, okay, here's here's the steps to follow for when you do a product launch. Here's the steps to follow for when you do this. Here's the steps to follow for surgery. And guess what? Half half less of the people are going to die. Yeah. Yeah. I was shocked when you look at every arena of human activity, like you're talking about sports, um, the stock market, you know, people have gotten really clever in noticing how the human brain works and trying to find workarounds, checklists, you know, picking players on statistics rather than a, than a, than an antiquated talent scout that's guessing mm -hmm. um but when you look at medicine it, it is lagging so far behind on in that because we always had this culture of the doctor was this sovereign nation of autonomy and you can't creep in on that autonomy at all by telling him to do a checklist you know god no no you can't do that so the the ones that are really knocking out of the park like intermountain healthcare in utah they work the system is part of the integration so the system is helping the doctors mm. and there's backlash you know the doctors don't like it some of the time but they found ways to work together and they it's the simple shit it's like it's like checklists and it's like timing of surgical antibiotics and it's just watching the doctors and seeing who's doing it the best giving them accolades and then they put peer pressure in the other ones you know they create this mm -hmm. environment of, of excellence and they intermountain is is about 40 percent less um 40% more efficient than the national healthcare. So if we could just be as good as them, we cut this by, you know, this huge thing by 40%. Throughout this podcast, we keep coming back to diet. And one of the cornerstones of diet is getting good, healthy fat in your system. And one of the best ways to do that is through some of the animal fats that come from dairy. Now, dairy gets a bad rap. And one of the reasons it gets a bad rap is a lot of people are lactose intolerant. So lactose isn't something that the human organism has evolved to be able to deal with very well. But that's only one part of what comes in any milk product, including butter or anything like that. 
But if you take out the lactose and you take out everything except for the fat that comes from the dairy, well, then you have ghee, G-H-E-E. And if you don't know about ghee, ghee is amazing. It has a high smoke point. It's just the fatty part of butter. So it's like clarified butter in a certain way. And it's great in shakes. It's great in every kind of recipe that you want to use just what is really the best part of any dairy, which is the fat, to support your diet. Now, whether that is a full ketogenic diet or whether that is just helping yourself sustain your diet with the ghee, it's going to be highly effective. So when I'm trying to go full ketogenic and I'm trying to get those acetone numbers, I actually measure it on a little pen called keto. When I'm trying to do that, I'm putting ghee in everything. I'm putting ghee in the bowls that I'm making. Sometimes, you know, if I'm making like a ground beef, avocado, cheese, I'll sprinkle some ghee in there. I'll put some sea salt in there, like whatever I'm doing. And of course, in my tea in the morning and my coffee, blend that up together with some MCT oil. It's just a great way to get fat into your diet. And Vital Farms crushes it. Like most of the ghee you see, you have to get a spoon and you spoon it out of a little container. They make this thing really easy. The price point is amazing. It comes from pasture-raised cows, which means the cows are happier, which means that when you have the ghee and you start to implement more fat into your diet, you're going to be happier too. So the happiness goes round and round. So if you're interested in getting some ghee, you can get it at any Whole Foods. Look for the Vital Farms ghee in the squeeze bottle or go to vitalfarms.com slash ghee, G-H-E-E. I'm telling you, check it out. It's worth it. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that you're talking about, like, okay, so antibiotics are the approved standard treatment, you know, standard of care for anybody who's going into surgery because it's there's germs, especially in a hospital, even if you sterilize it and you're open and you're going to be healing. So, but when is the best time to do it? Yeah. That's yeah. a good fucking question. Yeah. You know, and then finally, like, whether it was Intermountain or one of the other, you know, kind of proactive groups, they were like, oh, two hours beforehand is yeah. the best time. And it wasn't hard to figure out. You just looked at the record system and did it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, all right, now we know. Okay. Two hours before. Yeah. And then there's other, like, interesting data, too, about, like, the um, that intravenous aspirin Kerouac it sounded like the yeah. author was Kerouac or whatever that yeah, yeah. that thing is yeah that's fascinating that yeah. that is that's again this low-hanging fruit that we just don't capitalize on so early most breast cancers are diagnosed early like 75 percent are diagnosed at the primary stage so when you go in and do surgery which you 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 see this spike in recurrence about one year and, the, and then it goes back down the question is why is there that spike and so when you think about the act of surgery, you're going in there, there's cancer in there, and you're creating this wound, right? You're cutting. And so what, there's a very, you know, stereotypical response the body does. You have, you have uh, platelets go there to stop the bleeding. They release growth factors to enhance the healing. And these growth factors are what cancer relies on to, as fuel. So you're basically creating this perfect environment for the remaining cancer cells. And there's a really, there was an experiment done 50 years ago, these two brothers, they injected exactly 50 cancer cells into the portal vein of, of rats. And the portal vein goes right to the liver. And they opened up the rats about three months later and there was no, no liver cancer. They repeated the experiment, but this time they just did a, an incision across the belly and repeated that every two weeks. Then when they opened up the, the belly or looked at the livers at three months, it was just exploded with tumors. So the take home is that this wound process is fueling the cancer. And that's why we see the spike at one, at one year. 
And so this grad student had an idea, well, is there something you could do to kind of prevent that spike? It's an inflammatory process. Yeah, so the wound is actually creating a pro-inflammation environment. Right, right. So there's once in a while, patients will get this shot of Carolac, which is just an NSAID. It's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. And they do it mostly because it mitigates morphine use after the surgery. And so it's not done all the time. But when you look at those patients who got this shot, there's a 70% reduction in recurrence. That's huge. That's huge. That's a $10 shot. And the, the, all this, you know, there, how is there debate about doing that? But there's still debate. It doesn't get, it's not standard of care. It's not, you know, it, and it's a retrospective study. So it's not, it's looking back at data, not going forward. But the, I don't, you know, when you look at it, there's no reason to not do that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the other, the hypothesis of why as a retrospective, it wouldn't work would be that you're not randomizing it for the placebo effect well they got a million fucking things going on they're not going to be like ah, i got that carolac i'm gonna be good this cancer's not coming back i'm certain you know like that would be the hypothesis of why you would need the double blind clinical trial it's the gold standard right it's like not like to think that people are going to be like oh man i got that aspirin yeah i'm going to be cancer free you know and fucking signal all their genes and epigenetics to be healthy the rest of their life because they got that one shot and they're like I'm fucking golden, you know, because it's not like the doctors are telling them like, hey, you're getting this thing. They're like, oh, this will help with your morphine. It's not like they're like, we're going to give you this. And yeah. You're not going to get cancer ever again. And the patient's <laughs> like, really? Yeah. Really? Healed. I'm yeah. healed, you know, which would be a fucking, uh, you know, that would that would make sense. But that's not what was happening. That's not so. what's happened. That's not, you know, the, yeah, you look for those confounders and there's right. no obvious ones there. And you look at other studies that look back retrospectively, like the British doctor's study that first broke that smoking was bad for you. And the prospective study then matched perfectly with the retrospective data. Yeah. So there's kind of a bias towards that that data that's un, you know unfounded. Yeah. The uh the next interesting thing that you're talking about. So we're talking about all of these different, you know, kind of cancer treatments, treatments for the gut biome, which could affect all kinds of things, including like your mindset, anxiety, depression, all of these different like so many revolutions in it. But you know, interestingly, there was another absolutely free treatment for longevity that is really surprising. I actually talked about it a little bit in my book, but like one of the top determining factors of longevity is dun, 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 drum roll, Travis, please. <laughs> your social life. Your social life. Yeah. Your fucking social life. Yeah. You, when you go through, that's a great part of the book, Curable. When when you go through all of those centenarians and super centenarians, the people who lived over 100 and lived over 110, yeah. and then you go through and they're like, how'd you do it? And one's like, three Dr. Peppers a day. And the other one's like, 12 cigars a day and a nip of whiskey. And the other's like, like all of these different people. And even that one, even that one woman's like, I, who was like 120 or something yeah, no she's like clue. she's like i don't know my life sucked i was hoping i died way earlier but god's punishing me i guess you know like wasn't even positive attitude at that point it yeah. was like but then you look at a place like sardinia which is yeah. one of the blue zones they call where like people are living way longer and you start to like look at and there's other statistics too but you start to look at all right well maybe it's the olive oil but then why are they higher than all of the rest of italy if it's the olive oil or like you can like look at these things mm-hmm. and then you really take a look at it and you find it's because they're built their homes right on top of each other and everybody's just hanging out all the time yeah yeah it's it's you know i guess it was never appreciated how corrosive loneliness is and now when you we can now it's studyable it's social genomics so 
when you look at somebody who reports they're lonely versus somebody who reports they're you know happy and have a good social life, you look at their 23,000 genes, 209 of them are expressed differently. And then you look at those genes and what's going on. And the ones that are upregulated are the ones involved in the, in the initial inflammatory response. So these people have this kind of low-grade inflammation, which is associated with early death, with cardiovascular disease, cancer, everything. And the ones that are turned down are the steering response of the immune system. So the ability to fight off infections, viruses and everything. So their, their immune systems are compromised just by feeling lonely. So there's this you know, underappreciated kind of looping system from our perception to our epigenetics and our truth in the way our bodies are, are acting, yeah. which I, you know, intuitively, I guess most people knew this, you probably knew this, but now we just see, you know, you can map it out. Well, you see the, you see the stats and then, and then the, that field of social genomics. And, and the interesting thing is, so it's not, there's not like a, an absolute or objective amount of loneliness. Like you got to right. spend this amount of time with a person. Like it's your perceived loneliness, which then goes into the interesting research of like your remembering self versus your experiencing self, which I want to talk about. But yeah. it's your perceived loneliness that contributes to a 50% increase in early death, right? Yeah. So you could be around a lot of people, but if you still perceive yourself as lonely for whatever reason, then you're going to fall in that category. You could be out in nature and be like fucking roomy and be like the trees are my friends yeah. and like not yeah. be lonely at all right. even though you're hardly ever seeing every time you know you're somebody comes in once a week and like you give them a hug and have some tea with them and that's good for you right. that's good for your constitution that you wouldn't report that person wouldn't report being lonely well as long as they don't report being lonely they're not perceiving themselves as lonely they're not triggering those epigenetic triggers which is like the volume knobs on our gene expression yeah it's a great way that you put it in the book they're not triggering that, so they're not contributing to these diminishment of life expectancy. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's a need. You know, there's introverts that just don't need to be around that many people to not feel lonely, and then there's extroverts or just people that can be in a crowded room and, and feel lonely. So it's yeah, it's an intrinsic need. And I thought it was interesting that the person you know that I talked about in the book that lived the longest, Jeanne Clement from from France, she lived to be 122. She, had, she was extraordinarily active. She had a wonderful life. You know, her husband, she never had to work. Her husband was rich, very active, but she just didn't have a need to be around. She never professed ever being lonely. And when she was 107, uh, no, 120, she said, I, she told a reporter, I dream, I think of my life, I'm never bored. And people who knew her would always say she just kind of had this way about her. She just never really got concerned or she just didn't handle stress really well. So I, yeah, I just I and guess she something, smoked cigarettes. Yeah, she smoked even in her retirement home that she went to at yeah. one ten. Yeah, you know she's like fuck it, I'm going. Yeah, and she's, she makes friends with a nurse and smokes cigarettes yeah. with her after every well, meal. In moderation, she had yeah. She started when she was like twenty and smoked till she was one seventeen. Um, <laughs> it was like one or two after dinner every night, and and some port wine and a, a dessert. But it was moderation, you know. Yeah. She was active. Sure. So I get you know the take home to me was that. We're, we get so spun up and what am I doing it right? Where's my vitamin D level? Am I exercising enough? And you, that, you know, I ate this fucking cracker today. I know it had gluten in it. Yeah, it said yeah. gluten free, but I know there was hiding yeah. in there. I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But those variables are not really what matters. You know, obviously in excess they do, but mm -hmm. to our, to our health and longevity, it's not there. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. I think you summed it up. It says, don't worry so much. 
Have an occasional dessert or a drink if you want. Be active, play, be moderate. Engage with the world and the people around you. Not only will you live longer, you'll live better. Yeah. Sums it up. <clears throat> yeah, it's a beautiful, the science takes you to a beautiful way to live your life. Yeah. And it's interesting because you can tell somebody to eat this, eat this, take, have your vitamin D level here, but you can't tell somebody how to not be lonely. So you enter this, you know, this world where health becomes kind of artistic or a pursuit. And also like social engineering starts to become interesting. Like what, and, and what one interesting thing that you were pointing out is that actually loneliness is increasing with each new generation. Yeah. Perceived loneliness is increasing. Potentially this is related to the proliferation of social media mm -hmm. and the isolation that we feel based upon that. Who knows? But also like depression, suicide rates, a lot of these different things that come from comparing ourselves to other and maybe actually instead of having getting together and meeting up we're just texting everybody all the time which is creating this sense of loneliness the body doesn't fully recognize that as community yeah so like re-engineering and re-understanding this idea of community and how you gather and what reasons you gather for and like you know like that's a really interesting thing that's going to have a dramatic impact you know like a, there's a billion biohacking summits you know all over the all over the nation and world but like, how about like social, you know, like community building summits? Like, hey, how do we hang out more with each other? Yeah. Like, what are the, how can we form bonds with people that, and how can we re-engineer like the way we live and how we, you know, cultivate these, you know, environments where we aren't lonely? Yeah. And and I think I put a quote in there from Thomas Jefferson, who who said that the duty of government is the happiness of the citizenry. You know, and our government, they, they don't, consider happiness in the citizenry but the uk they're actually consider that as a metric for how they operate and that really should be you know the way they should it should be a consideration how do you design a society to be to you know do you say utopia but just to be better yeah yeah well that's a fucked up question though because as kahneman one of the researchers who you talk about who studied happiness for like what three decades mm -hmm. you know he was trying to figure out what makes somebody happy and then finally he just kind of threw his hands up and was like ah, i mean i don't know people people are people like leave me alone <laughs> you know it does what it seemed like he kind of got to the conclusion because happiness is such an ephemeral thing yeah. and what he did is he described the difference between the experiencing self like yeah. i am happy right now mm -hmm. versus the remembering self which recalls your personal history and your life data and decides whether you are happy based on certain things that stick out in your story yeah you know it's like the people you had a study in there of the people who won the oscar lived way longer than the people who actors of the same you know variety who didn't win an oscar you know like why is that yeah why is winning the oscar having a little bit getting the nod from well perhaps their remembering self remembered their life as happier like oh, i yeah. won an oscar yeah you know i was like it, i really did it yeah and, and yeah kahneman had a clear when you read his work on happiness, he had a clear, well, I shouldn't say bias, but he, he really thought that the, re, the experiencing self was more important. So, and, and when you- Which makes sense, because am I happy right now? Right now, yeah. Sure, yeah. that, that seems to be valuable. Right, right, and that's, he, he did, it's a really interesting way to look at it. So he divides it up into experiencing self and remembering self. And most of the data is on, when you ask somebody, are you happy? It automatically engages the remembering self. You think of your life. And so you're really reporting on your, your life narrative. 
But if you ask somebody in this very moment, are you happy? Now you're engaging the experiencing self. So he did studies where they had timers and beepers and you'd ask some people throughout the day, are you happy in this moment? To get a reflection of what the experiencing self is going through. Um, but but the, what, what he shows is the remembering self. So like when you reel back through your life, what do you see? Do you see, do you see regret or do you see success? That turns out to be the one that's in charge. So when you decide what you're going to do tomorrow, where you're going to go on vacation, you're really engaging the remembering self. And the remembering self is mostly motivated by bullshit. So, <laughs> so, so material things, right? Yeah. Your social media feed when you're on vacation instead of just being there in the moment. But then, you know, and that seems very kind of intuitive and obvious, but then you look at that, that Oscar study which shows that there's, there's actually impact to people that are accepted, the remembering self, right? This is acceptance from the beehive. Somehow penetrates you and, and conf, you know, confers health. So they're not, uh, they're intertwined, but they're, you know, they are, you can look at them as separate, but there's obviously some, they're weaved together in some weird way. It's kind of like that perceived loneliness thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have, if you perceive yourself as, it's uh, whether you perceive yourself as happy, whether you're happy or not, is actually one of the biggest contributors to this thing yeah. you know and that the remembering self whether you remember yourself as happy or whether that actually matters because that's what's signaling your genes constantly that's what's actually being that's what is the epigenetic trigger it's that state of you know because those mo- and it makes sense in this in a way because these moments are fleeting 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 but what's the constant pressure Right. The constant pressure on your epigenetic triggers is what you remember about your life. Right, right. right? Am I always un- in stress? Am I always in trouble? Am I always sad? Am I always lonely? Am I always this? You know, like that's kind of like the constant state that you're signaling in the background. Whereas actually the immediate flowy state, you know, whatever that is, maybe isn't persistent enough mm-hmm. to actually cause as much impact unless it actually confers to your remembering self state and then you can actually but the remembering self like you said is is ineffective you know it's a it's a it's a narrative based thing that remembers beginnings significant moments and ends of stories and you have like interesting like water temperature studies where like the water heats up at the very end of people immersing their hands in cold water and even though they're in there longer they're like ah that was nice yeah you know yeah, it's that, like that one was interesting wasn't it right because it's like the end of the story was what is more ma- important was was more important than actually the amount of pain that they actually felt yeah yeah we're fucked up we're, <laughs> we're fucked up <laughs> we're fucked up and it's and it's uh i think the key to actually any time that anyone realizes like the state that we're in is just being able to observe without judgment and be like okay yeah cool we're all fucked up and that's okay (laughs) now let's look at this let's observe it i mean i think that's what you know that's what munger was doing really like that's what that's what they were doing when they were taking a look at this they're like wow all right we're fucked up and that that excites me like how are we fucked up let's look at this and let's see like what are the things that are causing the problems and fix those first you know like what's the thing that's making things worse rather than what can we do to make it better like all right, well, let's look at what's making it worse. Well, all of these cognitive biases, all these things, that's making it worse. Yeah. That's a good place to start. Yeah, and I think with your health, that, that kind of inverse rule of problem solving is, is important. We, we always think, well, I don't feel good. What, what should I add in? What can I take? 
Right. You know, it should be what what is what can I take away that's causing that? You know, it's a good rule I think to live by just to solve problems. It's looking yeah. at them from that that kind of underbelly direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I can't encourage people more to read these books. I mean, all these things that we talked about, like the studies. You have all the studies, all the descriptions, you know, available in here for people who are the data heads and like looking to get in. And and the things that you'll find are just absolutely shocking i mean there's i have a list of 27 things here and we've gotten through like half of them but little things that i'll never forget like seven thousand people die every year from sloppy physician handwriting seven thousand people fuck what if that's your grandma or your mom or like and it's like they use an ipad yeah like for real you know, like you can fix 7,000 lives. Like I p- saw something posted from Tim Kennedy the other day. 3,000 people died in 9-11. 8,000 people died in all, in the war on terror on our side as soldiers. Okay, 7,000 people a year are dying. Look how, look how much of a fucking... Disproportionate. Yeah. Like, you know, we're so that was like such a big deal. Like, yeah, granted it was. It was fucking horrible. But 7,000 people a year are dying from sloppy handwriting. We can type. Like, that's all you need to do is type and you like fix that problem. You know, like 200,000 Americans die because of some other kind of medical error. So like, what are the efficiencies there you can get? And all the money that's being wasted, like so many of these different things that you start to look at and you're like, man, come on. Like we can, we can do better. We really can. Yeah. So you got to end on a positive note, right? (laughs) You got to end on a positive note. And you did a a beautiful job of that. Yeah. And, And you know, when I was writing that book, everything let, I didn't touch in the like, what do we do? Single payer? How do we solve it? And everything when I was writing it led towards a single payer. It just seemed like that makes the most sense. Um, and you can, you can eliminate a ton of ways by going single payer, you know, just like that. What is single payer? So, so a single payer system, like, like a national healthcare system, like yeah. the NHS in England or Canada has, mm-hmm. <clears throat> where the gov- everybody's insured and the government pays. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's part of the debate right now. The Democrat, most of the Democrats are for single payer. And it does make sense, you know. But then when you look around in the U.S. especially, there's these pockets of incredible innovation. So these health, like boutique healthcare companies are popping up, like Verta Health. They do a ketogenic diet for type 2 diabetes. It's value-based. So the, the employer or the payer only pays if they get results. And there's there's literally hundreds of these kind of companies cropping up. Intermountain Health is just a... You know, I'd rather go there so much more than the UK or, sing, or the Canada. So there's these huge pockets of innovation in the US. Now, how do we kind of merge those two? How do we take care of everybody? But when you go to a single payer, you homogenize everything and you kind of, you lose those wonderful vicissitudes that capitalism thrives on. Mm. You know, you kind of, you can't really bake innovation in there too well. Yeah. So how do you, you know, that, that's a huge problem. And I don't know the answer to that. But that, you know, that's the conundrum we're at. How do we solve this thing? Yeah, it's interesting because you get to that, you know, which would be a gigantic bureaucratic machine. Mm-hmm. And then innovation is going to come really slow. Yeah. But it solves a lot of problems, carte blanche, right off the right off the bat. Yep. You know, like all the fee-for-service issues, all of the discrepancies in medical care across the board. And but like you said, then it may be maybe prevents the innovation that could yeah. really radically transform healthcare and like lead the example for the whole rest of the world so right. oh that's a that's a question that 
you know, probably somebody with some more money ball kind of answers than us yeah. with all our cognitive biases can yeah. actually. Well, that's what I'm hoping, purport. you know, the Berkshire, they got a tool Guande as a CEO and he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Yeah. So that's one to look at to see what they do. Yeah. You know, maybe, they, maybe they'll get it right. Maybe they'll do it. Well, the, you know, the, that's the thing that when problems become bad enough, solutions tend to arise. And that's unfortunately one of the ways that people move into action is, at the point where things are really so shitty yeah. that that we have to change and maybe that's the that's the silver lining of the system that we've created is like oh yeah we made it so fucked that now we're going to be forced to innovate because yeah. we can't bear the cost anymore at scale the more people we have the more people that are getting sick the money alone isn't going to be there the work efficiency is going to be there we're going to we're going to we're going to rot from the inside out, so to speak, as a, as a nation, unless we fix this healthcare crisis that we have, which may be the thing that's causing the innovations, like with the birth, uh, the Berkshire Group. Yeah, you know, they'll be like, oh, okay, 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 got it. Yeah, like we got to come up with some different different solutions, and it seems like that's happening, and that's the encouraging. Yeah, you know, that's the encouraging factor. Yeah, yeah, it's. I think one in five people now have medical debt. Yeah, you know, it's 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 bankrupting the country. So yeah, you're right. It's unfortunate that we, as a species, have to wait till something's beating us in the face before we react. Yeah. Well, fast every once in a while. Put someone else's poop in your butt. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, think you know. Think outside the box a little bit. And uh, there's so much, there's so much to look, look forward to in uh, in what in what we have going on, but not be blinded by uh, the negatives of what we see as well. So I think. Uh, also if we have that kind of better outlook we're probably going to live longer ourselves so we'll be able to help more rather than if we look at the bleak pessimistic side of things that was another thing like there's that study done on people who wrote their own autobiographies and the people in the lowest quartile of those who said mm -hmm. we were like the least happy they died 10 years earlier than everybody else yeah. right so yeah. um you know that that understanding like the scientific basis for putting yourself in a state of gratitude, looking back like a stoic would upon their life and saying, oh, thank you for my challenges and thank you for these things. Like, so that you look at all of these things that have been challenging in your life and all of the conditions that were hard and all of the stuff and you alchemize those into something that you're grateful for. Like that's not just for funsies. Like that's gonna, that's gonna mean you're gonna live longer. Mm -hmm if you're able to do that you yeah. know if you can say like thanks for my pain and thanks for my challenges and thanks for all the shit that i've gone through yeah. you know like i really appreciate that because it's made me stronger and you have that attitude and you look back at your life and you go man my life was fucking perfect because every challenge came and allowed me the opportunity to get stronger and we look at the nation being man our nation went the perfect way because it got everything so fucked up that we had to fix it and we innovated and we have that outlook on life well at the very least, we're going to be better off. Right. <laughs> you know, so well, that seems to be the way to go. <laughs> Thank you so much for all your work and all your research and, and putting this out there. And, um, you know, just, yeah, keep going. And, and any help that I can provide or anything else, you know, I'm, I'm so behind this cause. You know, it's, uh, it's so important and it affects all of us. You know, we all know people who have, you know, been in the system and suffered the consequences of the system. And some people have had great, outcomes and successes as well it's not all bad you know doctors are not mean and you know mostly greedy out to get people and the system is not conspiring again it's just you read this you understand it's just human nature you know and people are most likely doing their best yeah. you know 
Yeah. Um, and that's another thing to remember too. There, there may not be any villain here other than just human nature just itself. Just understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Just understand it. Well, thanks so much. The book is curable. It is out. Uh, when is it out? October third. October third. So I think when this podcast uh, publishes, the book will be available. It's going to be Amazon. Audible. Amazon. Yeah, and I'm not sure which bookstores I got it in, but most of the major ones. Yeah. Cool. And then we have a talk tonight, so we'll have that uh, we'll have that out as well. Yeah, right on. Awesome. Thank you so much, Travis. Hey, man, I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Peace. Thanks for tuning into the podcast, and make sure to check out Travis's book, Curable. It will blow your mind as it blew mine, and you'll have a whole reframe on the entirety of the healthcare system, as you know from listening to the podcast. So I really encourage you guys to check that out everywhere books are sold. And of course, sign up for my newsletter, share this with a friend. There's a lot of people that could benefit from this podcast. So please share it with the people you love. It's important. And thank you so much.